Welcome to Blockspaces Live, the podcast where we help real people solve real-world problems with blockchain and Web3. All our episodes are recorded live, which means you're welcome to attend yourself, to ask questions, and be a part of our community. To get your invite, head to blockspaces.com slash podcast and hit subscribe. In today's episode, we're joined by Chuck Dyer, Chief Blockchain Officer at Blockspaces, and we explore what decentralization in blockchain means and what its use cases are. Stay tuned to find out why decentralization isn't just a technology for metaverses and crypto trading, what business leaders need to understand about its applications and shortcomings, and how decentralization evolved from the 80s into the current state of blockchain today. All right, let's get into the show. Before we get uh, any further, can you just uh, share with us a little bit more about your background and uh, what you're working on right now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I started my IT career uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s in the uh, in the Marine Corps. Uh, got a lot of my initial kind of computer uh, introductions through my father, who was a professor at Ohio State University, uh, worked in their computer science department. Uh, so I grew up around them. Uh, for the past over 30 years now, I've been working in mostly cloud infrastructure, uh, running large data centers, building out large data centers. Um, for the last 10 years or so, I've been really focused on research and development around AI, around blockchain, uh, worked for a number of companies, both in the Midwest as well as down here in Florida. Uh, I've been with Blockspaces now for the last um, just a little over three years now and uh, really enjoying it. Great. Yeah. Well, you have a really interesting background because you have this experience before decentralization was um, executed in practice. So you you know what it's like to do things in a centralized manner, but you also have seen firsthand what uh, decentralization looks like and what people are trying to achieve with that approach. So uh, really looking forward to diving into that more with you today. Um, just a quick reminder on our format. Uh, if you're new here, um, we leave time at the, all of our at the end of all of our interviews for um, an AMA portion. So if you've got a question for Chuck as we go, um, please click the Q and A button at the bottom of your screen. Um, that's the best way for us to to see those questions um, and share those questions at any time. There's no need to wait until the end. Um, we will make sure we have time to answer your questions um, as as many as we get. So, all right. Well, let's get into decentralization a bit further. Chuck, why don't we start with just your working definition of what decentralization is, that'll give us a good framework and foundation for the, the rest of our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, the first thing I want to do is make sure we set the stage between decentralization and distributed systems, because I think when we talk about infrastructure and cloud infrastructure, distributed systems has been around for a long time. Uh, a lot as more and more uh, systems have gone to the internet, uh, it's really kind of focused on distributing that system or that application geographically to be as close to the customer as possible. Now that's very different than decentralization. When we, when I look at my definition of decentralizations, it's really about distributing the nodes in a manner that allows for the diversification of not only providers, but geographies, but the operators of those nodes that no more than any, you know, that no more than one entity has the controlling interest of more than 10% of that. So when we talk about blockchain, you know, a blockchain can only be decentralized if no one provider has control of the entire blockchain. Otherwise, it's just a, another centralized system. Uh, and it has a lot, there's a lot of ramifications for that on both sides. And you mentioned you've been around computers your whole life, right? So 
um, decentralization is meant to have like a use case and solve a problem. Can you kind of walk us through the the problems that you noticed with computer systems kind of growing up and how decentralization sort of attacks that? Sure. I mean, you know, the biggest part of decentralization is trust. Uh, and, you know, as as IT and information systems have evolved over time, they've been they've gotten larger, more powerful, more data, uh, more people connecting to them. And one of the challenges that you have with centralized systems is the owner of that data is in control of that data. I know one of the biggest things when we're talking about blockchain specifically is really financial data and the difference between central banks and currency within, you know, that are government controlled or as opposed to cryptocurrency and things that blockchain controls. Um, when you have a single owner of that system, the owner has control of that. They can make changes to it. They can make modifications to it. They can um, put rules and regulations in place that um, are not necessarily advantageous to the end user. Uh, and the end user doesn't have really any say in that. Um, so as things have evolved over time, we've gone to more where more and more people want to have that control placed in their hands regarding their privacy, their control, how they're able to use the data, what data they're actually able to put out there, and how they can interact with that data with other people without overreaching regulation. Yeah, and, and from that description, it sounds like it sounds like the actual users themselves are where the vast majority of the responsibility is placed. Um, can you kind of walk us through? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, as it relates to blockchain, you know, there is a technical hurdle that has to be overcome. And for the early adopters of anything crypto on blockchain, it's really been the responsibility of the end user to be able to take that control themselves. You know, with with great power comes great responsibility. Um, I know we'll talk later about kind of custodial and keeping your keys as opposed to centralized exchanges or decentralized exchanges. And where where does that line kind of come where you are no longer in control and where you are in control and those things that you have to kind of keep in mind as, as you're looking at those things. But I, I think the you know, the most important thing as you're looking at it from a user perspective is you at the end of the day to have that type of power and that control over you know your finances or your data you are responsible at the end of the day for it because there is no centralized provider or entity that's governing that um, there is nobody to go to and complain if you lose your key or if you can't access your wallet anymore um, so personal responsibility is is a key trait when moving into a decentralized type of application or into into that type of an environment How long has, so you've been in the, you know, the tech space for a while. How long has decentralization been a concept? And then, and I'd love to hear on top of that, like, when did it actually go from concept to something that people could practice in, in reality? Well, I think, I guess you could look at the advent of the internet when the internet started, I think was probably one of the first technology related decentralization projects because there is really no one entity that owns the internet or controls the mm -hmm. internet you have a lot of uh, providers isps uh, data center providers telecommunications providers that all make up the internet and they each have regulatory things that they control within their area or their purview but from a decentralization perspective the internet gave the average person anywhere in the world the ability to log in 
put data out there and have it be available to anyone anywhere in the world at any time. So I think from technology speak, that was probably one of the first major consumer-based decentralization efforts that are out there. Uh, I think it has evolved certainly over time with the advent of blockchain and, and bringing blockchain in, certainly Bitcoin being kind of this first cryptocurrency and this first uh, dive into kind of decentralized money or the concept of, of, of current digital currency um, and the importance of decentralization to be able to make that work effectively. Um, because again, if, if the, the problem you're trying to solve is there's no governmental or no organizational control over that, and that is in the, in the hands of the individual consumer, then only a truly decentralized environment or platform can exist to be able to support that effect. Mm, yeah. So, so you mentioned some of the challenges, well, some of the benefits that could come from the, the user side when things are decentralized. Can you speak to like some of the challenges that have come up from a centralized approach? Like, like especially real world examples you can think of like in the news, especially with, I know there's been a lot of data breaches and, and, you know, you know privacy hacks and things over time. So what are the things that come to your mind that really illustrate why decentralization might be needed in certain contexts? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think since the advent of the internet, we have seen newspaper reports and uh, articles about hacks and data breaches and, uh, people stealing funds or different things like that, you know, anything that has a centralized owner of it. And, and I think the most um, appropriate one recently is FTX. Uh, again, you know, people who are, want to get in as investors, they want to have cryptocurrency, they're trading in these different things. When you're using a centralized platform, like a, like a, a centralized exchange, like an FTX or whatever it may be, um, though those funds and those things that you're trading do not belong directly to you. They're not in your direct control. You are putting your trust and your faith in this organization that you send that to, to be able to facilitate the, the trades and the transfers and the transactions of those, those things that you want to be able to do on your effect. So if there's anything nefarious going on, or they have a data breach, or they have a hack, or they have anything that happens uh, within that organization, that that data or that that currency or whatever it may be is gone. It's out of your control. Uh, and again, I think that that was around even before cryptocurrency. I mean, since the internet exists, people have, there's always people out there trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I break into this? What's the value of that data? Or what's the value of this uh, financial transaction I can I can intercept or do? Um, th those threats have always been there. Uh, and obviously, blockchain adds an additional layer of security in a truly decentralized way, if it's done appropriately, to be able to mitigate a lot of those security concerns or those breach type concerns. So if I didn't know anything about decentralization, I might say something like, well, that sounds really great because maybe there's a reduced risk of data being stolen or compromised. But decentralization in practice, like not... Not every situation needs decentralization. Most companies still use a centralized approach. Um, even like you said, crypto exchanges are using a centralized approach um, to a degree. So walk us through like why decentralization hasn't happened sooner or why it's not happening. Why are companies still choosing to remain uh, with a centralized approach? Well, decentralization is hard. I mean, there, there's so many pieces to decentralization that most people don't think about. 
And, you know, decentralization is really made up of a bunch of concepts. It's made up of um, privacy, censorship, uh, security, transparency. So in order to truly decentralize, there are a lot of things that have to go into that, specifically around blockchain, because that's kind of our, our topic around decentralization. Um, first off, you have infrastructure diversity, meaning that a blockchain can't run in a single cloud, in a single region, in a single data center, because the risks of anything happening to those central providers um, risks that entire, that entire chain, the, the, the security and vulnerability that change. Um, you also have the governance model of it. Um, chains that are run by organizations, you know, most people look at um, uh, Ethereum as a decentralized protocol. It's not. Ethereum is run by, you know, the company. They do the centralized development. They put it out there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you also have consensus diversity and distribution um, because depending on whether you're proof of work or proof of stake, you could have uh, more than that 66% of the network being controlled by uh, large entities or organizations, which we see a lot of today because people stake through central exchanges. You know, that's mm -hmm. where a lot of the staking power comes from. So when you you look at, you know, FTXs and the Binances and the Krakens of the world, they make a, lot, a large percentage of, of stake power um, where that, that stake power, because it's done through a pool, that's taken away from the individual to be part of that consensus or governance mechanism. So, you know, if if you wanted to do something nefarious, all you have to do is get enough stake power to be able to change something. And you can, you can manipulate data then if you have that control over it. Um, the other thing from a decentralization perspective is uh, organizations that control that and what type of regulations they have through governments through the countries in which they operate in. So for example, if you have uh, chains that are running out of the US and you have the SEC file, uh, some type of a subpoena for them to block a wallet address or to, to back out a transaction or to reverse different things like that, um, that then doesn't fall into the model of true decentralization of that protocol. If, if it can go in and be manipulated by a central organization. It sounds like so from what I'm getting, it sounding like you're not the biggest fan of proof of stake uh, networks. Uh, could you w unpack that a little bit? Because um, uh, you mentioned Ethereum, um, you mentioned certain issues. Uh, can you kind of walk us through what what proof of stake means for someone who doesn't? Yeah, so proof of sure. So proof of stake uh, means that you own uh, a certain amount of that that protocol, that token, whatever it is. And you're putting that token up as collateral for the nodes that you're running to be able to prove that the transactions you're writing to the blockchain or to the ledger are valid. And if you don't write valid transactions, you'll be slashed, meaning you'll lose those, those tokens as, as part of a, um, you know, a punishment for not playing nicely within, within the protocol. You know, proof of stake, proof of work both have their pros and cons, obviously. Proof of stake is challenging, especially for new protocols, because a lot of times the price of the, of the token is very low. It's, it has a very easy entry point. It allows uh, large scale investors or you know, high net worth individual investors to go buy a lot of it and have a lot of it to be able to stake, which in the end you know, is good for the protocol because you need to have a, you know, a certain percentage of it staked anyway. But for the security and privacy and censorship of it, that takes then you have basically the concentration of the stake between just a few individuals or institutional entities that can control 
the change to that blockchain if they so desire to do that. And if those stakes are controlled by uh, legal entities um, that are under the jurisdiction of certain government you know, regulatory agencies, they could be forced to vote on a consensus mechanism, a way that might be uh, detrimental to that Web3 protocol or to that chain specifically, but because they're being forced to. So making sure that part of decentralization, especially in proof of stake, is that the stake is distributed appropriately. I know that's really hard to do because you know, you want to be able to have as many people doing it as possible. But the reality of it is, is a lot of the new protocols have very high concentrations of, of small numbers of investors that have very large stakes that could impact that early on in its in its development life cycle. Yeah, and you, you touched on something interesting there too, of if there's an entity, so even if even if the hardware is distributed, there could still be an entity at the center that could get subpoenaed, that could get called on. And so um, with recent events happening with, you know, Gary Ginsler has been uh, getting active in the space, right? So um, what do you have, do you kind of have an opinion on uh, the Bitcoin versus Ethereum sort of dynamic? Like if, if Ginsler, for example, leaves Bitcoin alone, but calls everything else a security, like what's your opinion there on as far as decentralization is concerned? I think right now it's almost too early to tell. Um, the adoption levels of cryptocurrency, you know, as a uh, as a mass adopted, you know, amongst you know uh, countries that that are using currency in that way, uh, is mm -hmm. so low that it's really hard to tell yet. Um, I think as the adoption level goes up and more and more people start using it, I think that the government's certainly going to want to put their thumb on it, the scale, and and bring more regulatory compliance into it which I think is going to be challenging for Bitcoin specifically, because that's probably the only truly decentralized cryptocurrency that's out there. Um, and there is no central organization that can control that. Um, you know, the challenge Bitcoin has, obviously, is the consolidation of mining operations between, you know, just a handful of, of companies that hold that consensus for proof of work. Um, that, that and, and again, those those have shifted based on, you know, China and certain countries putting regulations on the on the mining and the proof of work. So they've, they've kind of been a little bit more diverse to be able to move that that operation around to keep it kind of out of the government regulatory compliance. Um, but that one would be extremely difficult to be able to, to, to put their thumb on the scale of that one. But other ones, um, and, and certainly there will probably be legislation and, and requirements coming in that, you know, for any new protocol that's developed, it has to have some type of regulatory compliance backdoor or something like that, which, again, philosophically defeats the whole purpose of blockchain. So it's, it's kind of an ethical dilemma. <laughs> what, um, do you, is there anything, what's closest to being fully decentralized today in your view? Well, I, I, like I said, I think Bitcoin is probably the closest to being as decentralized as a protocol can be. Um, mm -hmm. I think there are other protocols out there that have the desire that, um, are trying to move in that direction. Um, you know, the, the challenge is, is every Web3 protocol that comes out, um, they really have to look and see what is the utility of that protocol? What, what is it? What is the expectation of what it's going to do? Um, and that should really kind of determine whether or not it should be regulated as a security or whether it's just a utility token that does some function or it serves, serves a functional purpose. And I think it's really important that 
you know, when when protocol projects start out, they really kind of take a look at what are the requirements for privacy, for censorship, for security, for transparency, and what things are important to them for that protocol. Um, they really have to know what the protocol is going to be used for before they go out and develop it, um, because you know once you, once you set these things in motion you know it's 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 very hard to to stop that it's like the boulder going downhill you're not going to you're not going to stop it halfway down um so you really got to put the thought into that and depending upon what your use case is you know if privacy is the most important or if censorship's most important then how you choose proof of work proof of stake how you divvy out and how you allow people to stake to that could be different depending upon which of those things are most important to your specific use cases. When you look at enterprise uh, businesses that are that want to take advantage of blockchain and what they're doing, um, most of them will probably uh, initially be using blockchain in a very centralized way. Um, you know, if you look at a lot of the enterprise solutions that are out there for blockchain today, they, they mostly focus on Hyperledger Fabric. Uh, they mostly focus on, you know, they're going to run their own nodes. It's not really a, mm -hmm. uh, multiple companies. Now, when you get into consortiums, um, even consortiums are going to be centralized for the most part, because the, usually the consortium or the trade group will, will run that run that chain and they'll allow consortium members to participate in that chain. Um, but they'll still they're still very centralized because the consortium still has to be the governing body for that. Just like a lot of pro, uh, a lot of the protocols use DAOs. To be able to have this kind of separate organization to be able to manage them, um, but it, but it like I said again, it, it's really important that the the protocol developers initially really understand what is their use case and what's most important because that's really going to drive how they make the decisions for how the protocol is going to live moving forward. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned um, enterprise and that you know permission approach to to blockchain and things run by consortiums because I. One of the things that might be helpful for for folks to to hear you unpack is if you're using blockchain in that context where you do need some control and you do need some centralization, it kind of raises the question: Why would you choose blockchain anyway? Why wouldn't you just go with a fully centralized approach? What are so? My question is: What are these enterprises gaining from this hybrid approach where they are using blockchain but they're choosing to centralize certain aspects of it? What are they gaining over a more traditional centralized approach? Well, I think if, if you just look at the technology by itself, you know, blockchain is is nothing more than a database. Um, but the way the transactions are written to the ledger, it provides a lot more um, security and transparency. Again, if, if you're an enterprise and you're using Oracle financials, whatever it may be, you could have a, a, a rogue database administrator go in there and change transactional data within the Oracle database itself. Mm -hmm. And make those modifications and they could be missed for forever i mean they, they may never have been or they could be siphoning off pennies on the dollar on different transactions and that may not be be noticeable uh, whereas on a blockchain that is going to be written to a ledger and those transactions cannot go back and somebody can't go back in and change those things so when you look at transparency um you know, data validation. Um, if you go through very stringent audits from a financial perspective, or even from a data perspective, whether it's inventory, I know the cannabis industry uses blockchain a lot just because of inventory control, because it's, it's very highly regulated and they have to have that secure and that transparency in there. Um, you know, if, if those things are very important to you, um, then, then blockchain is going to be a technology that would be, you know, very desirable to look at as far as how you store that data. Uh, and with, the transparency from a ledger perspective, you don't have to worry about, 
you know, anybody going back and changing data after the fact, um, it's very easy then for you to be able to uh, go through an audit uh, because everything's there. It's it's completely visible. Yeah. So there's the, you're de-risking a lot of um, aspects of your database as an enterprise if you're using that approach. And by the way, I think that idea of siphoning off pennies isn't that the plot of uh, the Office Space and one of the Superman movies? Yes. <laughs> It's one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> yeah, so uh, pivoting a little bit because we we were talking a little bit about getting back to the topic of of custody, right? So um, there are there are because there's we can talk about like how uh, decentralization from like a, from like a hardware standpoint works and the benefits of that, but there's also like a wider almost like philosophical underpinning in this whole space that I think we would be remiss not to mention, right? Um, so when it comes to personal responsibility, taking custody of your own funds as, a, as it applies to like Web3 and how that all that works in the space, like what, so if someone's like just getting into Web3 or is curious about it, what would be like the underlying message philosophically, right? That you would want them to approach the space with? Well, I think philosophically, a lot of people probably are on the same page, you know, as, as a libertarian, I, I'm always kind of of the opinion that, you know, what what I earn should be mine, the government should keep their hands out of it, they have no business knowing, you know, what I how much I make what I spend my money on, you know, I'll pay my taxes, whatever it happens to be like that. But just that control and the privacy of, of what you have and what you do. Uh, I think is an inherent right of everybody, whether you're in the U.S. or anywhere in the world. Everybody should have the inherent right to privacy and 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 what they have. The challenge is is in order to achieve that, there are personal responsibilities that you have to have and maintain. Um, because if you're saying, "Hey, I want my privacy. I want my ability to have my transparency and do the things that I want to do," you also can't complain the next day whenever you've done something on your own accord that screwed that up and you've lost money or data or whatever it happens to be. Um, that you have that personal responsibility to do that. So I think it's inherent that in order to make a philosophical shift to that mindset and start going down the road and working in systems that will give you that, that capability, um, you have to understand it and you have to be educated to be able to do it. Um, the challenge is today is anything decentralized is, is not very consumer friendly. It's not very friendly to somebody who's not really tech savvy right now. Now, centralized, it is. You can sign up for a Coinbase account with an email address and you can buy Bitcoin in uh, five minutes with your, with your card or bank account or whatever it may be. But again, that's centralized. And that responsibility for the maintaining of that Bitcoin, its private keys, where it exists, how, how you do it, um, that's, that's not inherently yours in that, in that case, just like any other centralized provider. Um, if you purchase, if you spend, if you trade, if you make money, um, Coinbase and other centralized providers are going to report that to the government, just like, you know, an E-Trade account would or anything like that. So that that is not, again, it's not under your control. It's not private. It's very open. It's exposed. You have to KYC, know your customer whenever you sign up for that. So there's no privacy inherent in centralized systems, no matter where it is. So I think getting back to kind of the answer to your question is, in order to philosophically move to a decentralized privacy first, censorship proof environment, you have to inherently take that responsibility on 
and be willing to live with anything that you do to yourself that was not right. Um, you, you know, take responsibility for the good and for the bad. And that's that's how you move forward. I don't think a lot of people were willing to do that, though. That's that's the that's the caveat. Everybody wants somebody to blame. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there I mean, there it's kind of like what you mentioned. There's it's not very friendly for for tech savvy people at this point because um, non-custodial is hard. Uh, and you mentioned that earlier, right? And so that's sort of like, you know, I, I don't consider, I don't really consider myself a libertarian per se, but I always, I don't quibble with the the first principles, right? Leave people alone and let people kind of have the freedom to make mistakes and use that as a first principle and then walk back from there to where it's realistic, right? And so, um, so, so with that, it's, it's all about trade-offs. Mm -hmm. I think, I think the, the key is like trade-offs, right? So, in the case of Coinbase, you have a centralized exchange and it, the trade-off is convenience. And so do you, how far off do you think we are from that trade-off being less of a necessary evil? Uh, put, put it another way, like how, how soon do you think it's going to become more consumer friendly for a non-custodial solution to become more widely available so that people don't have to necessarily attach like a philosophical element to getting into the space? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I think that answer has actually changed over the last year, uh, specifically because of what we've seen happen in the centralized exchange space, you know, right. FTX. A lot of people have lost a lot of money uh, in mm -hmm. centralized exchanges and centralized cryptocurrency. And I think that those companies that are out there that are in the decentralized space, specifically around cryptocurrency, wallets, um, decentralized trading platforms, those types of things, have, have really kind of started to get hit in the face with, man, we really have got to make this more consumer friendly if we want to get mass adoption moving in this direction. The, the centralized exchanges have had that advantage for years because they make it super easy. Come put in an email, fill out some information and you're good to go. You know, decentralized exchanges have always been the catering to the tech savvy, the people who've been in it since the beginning, who understand, you know, wallets and how to move and the different, you know, token types and and you can't do that if you want mass adoption. And I think it's coming a lot faster than it would have been coming a year ago this time, just because the the market is driving it and forcing it into, into that manner. And I think more and more people are demanding it. I think the more and more people, and it's funny too, because you look at the people who've lost money with FTX and with um, some of these other companies that have gone out of business, they're, they're not running away screaming from crypto. Or from blockchain, they're 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 you know they're upset about it as they should be, but they're they're obviously not walking away because they know the the long term viability of what cryptocurrency and what blockchain means to um, the world is going to be something that they want to be a part of. So they're ready to jump back in, but they want to jump back in in a more secure way that that doesn't happen to them again. And I think people learning those lessons the hard way is going to again force the the market to start developing more decentralized type platforms for people that can be more consumer driven and friendly and easy to use. Yeah, that's sort of when we when we had Gabe Higgins on um, a couple of sessions ago, it kind of dovetails with that too. Like the the problems with like FTX, I mean that that should never happen to anyone. Just to be clear, like that's awful uh, that that people who lost a lot of money, but. Um, 
like you said, there's sort of a positive that can come out of it in that people are getting more attuned to this personal responsibility ethic when it comes to um, hanging hanging onto your crypto. It, it, this technology exact was exactly meant to solve that problem and putting custody in the hands of someone else is the exact opposite of what you want to do because that that undoes the solution, right? Yep. And, and I think it goes, a lot of people always say, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. But I think what we've seen in the centralized exchanges over the last several years is with great power comes great abuse. Um, and, and it's just, it's, it's inherent in that until there are the, the mechanisms put in place and people can understand the differences and know that decentralized mechanisms are, are the way that they need to be moving. Drew, Drew, building off your question, you highlighted two really important points, right? You, you mentioned a knowledge gap, which we're covering today. Frankly, people don't know what decentralization is or they don't understand the nuances of it. They may or may not understand what self-custody means or how to go about that. And then you touched on the user experience piece of, mm. uh, I might understand what self-custody is, but the process and the, and the products that are developed today make that somewhat onerous. Um, I have to have a really strong drive to actually go through that process to make it happen. Um, so again, knowledge gap, user experience development. Um, Chuck, do you think that those will be sufficient to drive decentralization forward? Or is there a regulatory component that needs to happen and, and evolve further to just help drive decentralization, drive self-custody? How do you see that playing a role in this development? I think the challenge is that any type of regulatory compliance is defeatist to the purpose of decentralization. Because in order to have regulatory compliance and regulatory things in place to be able to safeguard or to um, be there as a fallback for somebody's irresponsibility for doing something stupid, um, mm -hmm. and decentralization can't be fully implemented the way it's, it's meant to in these types of use cases. So I think regulation and regulatory compliance, as while I see that there's no way around it. Um, you know, if if this is going to grow into a mass adoption consumer product, there will be regulation around it. There, there you know, I, I wouldn't say there has to be, but there will be um, because the government will not be able to let it go and just say, oh, let the people do whatever they want. They they can't do that. I think that's against their nature. Um, but but I think I think there is still. I think both will still coexist. I, I think there will still be regulated cryptocurrency digital assets, and there will be unregulated distributed um, decentralized digital assets as well. And I think they will coexist for the most part. I think there will be um, artificial walls put up to make it as difficult as possible for those things to work together. Um, just because, you know, you're always going to weigh between good actors and bad actors, and they will always use bad actors as a way to implement more regulation, more control, um, which, which again is a stifling aspect of it. But, but when you look at the good that it can do, especially in um, unbanked populations around the world, mm. which, which is the majority of the population, when you look at the, the total aspect of it, um, the regulations that those places have in, in place where the unbanked, um, they're suffering because of the regulation, because of the, the lack of access to these types of things. Um, so, I think both will, will exist in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. I think it also depends upon if the technology 
and the speed of the development of the technology can continue to outpace government and government regulation, that will help it move in the direction it needs to move faster than if it's moving slow and government has a chance to be able to slap regulation in it as it goes. I think we saw that initially with Bitcoin, the fact that the government didn't pay attention to it. They thought it was a fad. And it, now it's gotten to a point where it's beyond the place where they can really do much about it uh, because it's kind of taken on a life of its own. So I think I think both will exist as we go. I think that the trend as it becomes more consumerized and more retail consumers start using it, it will become easier to use, but there will still be that. Um, I think both will still live in, live in tandem. What do you want to see out of development? How would you like to see decentralization development progress from here? I think the most important thing in my perspective is for um, protocols to really focus on decentralization, depending upon the use case. Again, I think it mm -hmm. goes back to the utility of the token. If you're looking at um, financial instruments or financial uh, DeFi type products or cryptocurrency, um, I think it's important that they really focus on decentralization and ease of use for or non-custodial um, uh, applications, wallets, trading platforms, those types of things. If you can make it just as easy to use a, a decentralized exchange as it is to use Coinbase, I think people who understand and they take that responsibility, they will much rather use that product. Uh, and again, I think it, it really comes down to the developers and what they bring to the table. Yeah, you, you touched on something a minute ago too that's kind of important is like uh, unbanked populations. Um, it's it's interesting because you know it, in in the West, right, we're we're relatively shielded. Uh, we're fortunate enough to be relatively shielded from the kind of world that's out there on the other side of the world, right? So what? Um, so it, especially in regards to Bitcoin, I know like Cardano, I think is doing something like this too, like. Uh, African populations, uh, Middle Eastern populations that are sort of like, as you said, unbanked. What, what, where do you see the role in decentralization in kind of moving in helping those parts of the world out? Yeah, I mean, it, there was a there was a great uh, TED talk a while back that I watched, and it was it was talking about the impact of cryptocurrency on remittances around the world, and they they threw out a number. I think I'm, I'm pulling this out of thin air, but I think the number. I think it was last year when they did that. The, the number, the amount of money that was in remittance fees was like five hundred and fifty-six billion dollars a year. Just I mean, in the fees? It's yes, just in fees. It's just it's an astronomical number because a lot of these countries where they do these remittance, they they take you know up to 40 percent on the dollar for the the money that's being transferred in, and, and these are the unbanked populations are their cash economies. I mean, they don't have bank accounts. All they can do is keep, you know, the coin or the paper money or whatever in their wallet. And that's all they have to be able to walk around. So, you know, and, and they were talking about the same thing as it relates to land and deeds. So if you're a person, you have a family of five and you're in Afghanistan and the Taliban runs you out and you come back three years later to your property and somebody else is living there. How do you say, well, that that's mine? Where's your contract? Where's your, where's your proof, your deed? You know, all of these types of things. Um you know, they're just, they, they don't have access to any of those types of things. Mm -hmm. So being able to use blockchain to be able to come into these countries and be able to, you know, make it something as simple as can be on a mobile phone or a mobile device, um, then they have access to the same types of DeFi products that, you know, Europe and the US and Australia and, and, and countries have 
um, you know, have access to without, you know, governments being able to manipulate their currency or the exchange rates or, you know, anything like that. Plus, it's extremely inexpensive. You know, if somebody wanted to send money from here to a family in Syria, they could, you know, send $100 for a penny or whatever it may be, as opposed to, you know, 50 bucks or whatever they may charge in remittance fees through Western Union or whatever service that they're using. Yeah, that's a that's a that's an important point. And like I mentioned, it's it's something that just kind of flies under people's radar when when talking um, about the use cases in this space. Right. Um, so from there, um, unless either one of you guys had anything else, we can pivot into Q&A. We've got a couple of questions. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Uh, so first question is from uh, Mateu Matthew Brandt. Uh, I'm sorry if I butchered your first name. Um, so first question is all hosts, uh, opinion on the Tezos network. Um, I know like me personally, um, I, I hesitate to, I don't know much about it. I just know that, um, I hesitate to, uh, I hesitate to opine on, um, thing, especially with the way securities laws are evolving. I hesitate to kind of go that way <laughs> on, <laughs> on, on networks, right? Because uh, who knows what the laws are going to be that could affect these protocols. Not to say that it's good or bad. That's totally neutral, right? I just, that's just my general take. How about you? How about you too? Yeah, it's not an area I know much about myself. So I'm hesitant to really give a strong opinion. But Chuck, if you can, if you know about, maybe if there's some background on the protocol you could share just mm -hmm. to explain kind of what it is and why it's different. If, if you happen to be uh, versant in that in that space and if not, I am, we can, I am we can not on I am not on Tezos that's not uh not one that I'm I'm up to speed on I'm kind of a Bitcoin maxi so <laughs> <laughs> yeah no right. worries kind of kind of tunnel vision there a little bit maybe that's a topic we can come back to in, in, a, yeah. in a future session though if there's some interest mm. that's a whole podcast in and of itself um, second question that was asked uh, by Mr. Brandt is how can decentralization be applied to benefit uh, the global logistics industry? I, logistics is a great use case for blockchain. Yeah. And I think um, I, I think it's not talked about enough. I think everybody always tends to continue to go down the, the cryptocurrency route because that's what's kind of been around the longest and has the most historical data on it. Um, but logistics, I mean, I know, I know we've been we've been talking a lot about uh, the cannabis industry. Um, you know, while that is a kind of a seed to shelf kind of concept there, there there's a lot of work going on in the blockchain space uh, around logistics in the cannabis company, in the cannabis industry. And, and I think I think there it's a really great use case that can be um you know, useful to a lot of different industries. If you look at what IBM did several years ago with Trade Lens. Um, that was in partnership partnership with Maersk, where they were actually doing uh, IoT connected into the blockchain to be able to track Connex boxes on shipping containers as they were moving between countries to better track um, the you know are they are they at a port are they on a ship where are they at you know when are they going to be delivered um, really kind of had that full thing um, and and if you look at a lot of the logistics stuff, especially in uh, food and in produce and in a lot of things like the WalMarts of the world, um, a lot of those kind of uh, distribution hubs, it's all paper. Um, everything's done on paper as far as how they transition from, you know, when it comes from the farmer's field to the co-packing spot to the distribution warehouse to on truck to that. Um, you know, 
logistics is a excellent, excellent use case for blockchain. And I don't think it gets the attention it, it deserves. Yeah, maybe not as glamorous as uh, you know, making millions trading crypto, but the utility is certainly uh, much, much greater. All right, um, cool. Well, if you all have any more questions, um, go ahead and drop them in. We've got a couple more minutes left, but um, you know, why we give you a moment to uh, to do that? Um, just want to share a couple uh, updates with you all um, related to block spaces. So, you know, first of all, we just recently launched um, public um, Web three endpoints, Web three infrastructure. Um, which you can get to on our website. So what that means, if you need a node to um, for your project for, let's say, I don't know, Polygon, Ethereum, Binance, um, whatever protocol you your Web3 pro project is based on, you can get access to um, a, a free endpoint uh, through Blockspaces. There's no registration required. You don't need to sign up. You don't need a wallet. Just go to Blockspaces.com. And then we have um, at the top of our menu, you'll see uh, developers. Under that, it says free endpoints. So take a look at that. We've got over 30 endpoints available now. Um, so be, be sure to check uh, that out. Uh, the other update I wanted to share with you all is that um, if you go to that page that I just mentioned, you'll find, like I said, over 30 protocols. And you know sometimes finding the right one for your project can be a little bit of a, a chore as well. So we wanted to make that process a little bit easier for you um, as well. So... Um, we, when I, I say we, Drew actually built most of this himself. So thank you, Drew. But <laughs> and Drew built a uh, a Web3 protocol tracker that breaks down uh, key details on some of the major protocols out there. So go to that same developer's menu, look for a Web3 protocol tracker, and you can access that, that free resource. And if there's something that you want to add or something that you um, would like to update, we've got a link in there to send us a, a submission as well. So uh, just a couple of things that I we, we thought you all might find useful. And uh, please go check those out. When you have the chance, uh, I think Drew dropped links to both of those in the uh, in the chat as well. So thanks, Drew. Uh, and we've got another question from Rosa. Let's uh, let's go ahead and tackle that one. Uh, Rosa asked, "What? What's that?" <laughs> I know Rosa. You know her. <laughs> I think we all might know her. Uh, Rosa asked, uh, "Do you think the Trade Lens project failed because it was so difficult for the partners to participate?" What's your take on that, Chuck? I, I would definitely have to agree with that. Um, obviously, the biggest challenge with any of the logistics where you have multi-party involved in that really comes down to the adoption by the by the parties in that. Again, um, you know, food trust, trade lens are all kind of consortium based. You know, IBM was trying to get a large uh, population of these customers that are part of this whole logistics supply chain to come together. And when you have so many of these different providers with so many different inherent systems that they use, um, so many different applications, they may not be um, able to integrate into this blockchain system that they have inherently, or it may cost them a lot of money, or they may have to pull in a developer that they're going to pay a high dollar amount for. Um, the integration into these systems, especially for, for small kind of mom and pop people that are along that supply chain, uh, can be very expensive and and very difficult for them to do, uh, and I know that that's that's something blockchain or block spaces is trying to solve with our platform. Um, so we want to try and make adoption not only for those types of products but for any types of products uh, as easily integratable into you know Web two systems as as possible to where you don't need to have a bunch of developers. Again, we want to be able to make that transition between whatever system you're using and whatever blockchain you want to use make those things talk correctly. 
but but yes, it's it's definitely that's probably the biggest challenge of blockchain adoption in in those types of consortium is uh, adoption of the players downstream. So you're you're saying there's like a almost like a fixed cost le level of effort that goes into de developing and participating in a project. If you're Walmart, that's you know a certain percentage of your budget. If you're a smaller player, it's a much larger percentage of your budget, and that is just too much of a barrier to really make participation practical. Yeah, and a lot of times in some of these, they don't necessarily have the incentives in place to incentivize mm -hmm. the downstream to participate in it. So for example, mm -hmm. in the case of Walmart, where they wanted to use food trust for, for their produce, um, I don't think they had necessarily enough incentive for the downstream providers to be able to utilize that data in a way that is valuable to them. So they have some way to be able to get their, uh, you know, their, what investment it's going to take them to be able to participate in that in that blockchain to be able to get that back by having that incentive in there. So I think if you have the right incentive mechanism to say, look, if you're going to be a participant on this, we're going to give you access to all the data that's on here and you can use it and take advantage of that. Um, or if it's just, hey, we're going to put this together and we're going to force you to belong to this or to participate in this, or you can't be a vendor for, for us anymore, whatever it happens to be. I, I think it needs to go both ways to be able to get the participation mm -hmm. on that. I, again, I think it's another thing too, as far as not just initial participation, but ongoing participation, because it's not just, you know, I'm going to hook into it, but I'm not going to use it. So again, it's it's not only participation, but being an active participant in it as well. The data is only good as good as the data that's put into it. So it's not just a technology hurdle, it's a implementation, it's a design hurdle, and how do you get people to be a part of this in a way that's going to benefit them. Yep. Okay. Well, I don't see any more questions coming through, so we can probably wrap things there. Um, Chuck, if someone wants to get in touch with you to follow up further, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, feel free to hit me on my LinkedIn. It's uh, Charles A. Dyer on LinkedIn. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate all your insight. Appreciate all your uh, thoughtfulness and what you shared about decentralization. Uh, we're going to publish this uh, in the recording here shortly. So be on the lookout for that if you couldn't catch everything today. Um, and last thing, when you see the webinar or when the webinar ends today, you should see a short survey pop up. If you have a minute to answer a couple of questions, it'll help make help us make future sessions better. So just be on the lookout for that. But uh, other than that, thank you, Chuck. And thank you all for being here. We will see Thanks. you next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Blockspaces Live. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you listen. And if this show helped you on your path to building with blockchain, then we'd be thrilled if you left us a review while you're there. And remember, to join our live recordings, just head to blockspaces.com slash podcast. Put in your email and we'll send you an invite. See you next time.